Good thing that wasn't recorded anyways. <laughs> Man, it's a treat to be with you. We are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you're using a pew Bible, because you're our guest, man, we all had a time when we had to figure out where the books of the Bible were, and I wish somebody would have told me back in the day what the page was. I didn't own my first Bible until sixth grade, so I understand the one of using the one in front of you and the treasure that is, 987 in your pew Bible. And we're going through Thessalonians, and you're going, what in the world is Thessalonians all about? It might even sound as if the name Thessalonians sounds like some kind of alien race off of Star Trek. Where did they get these names in the Bible? You know, uh, why are we reading a book so long ago? Well, in reality, the word Thessalonians is just a, used to be the name of a town, a port city, Thessalonica. It was a great port city, a lot of commerce there, a lot of diversity, action place. Paul strategically went there to be able to share the gospel. He preached that Jesus is the Messiah in a Jewish synagogue. It just so happened, though, that Gentiles and Jews and not a few leading women heard that news, the good news, responded, and their lives were converted in Christ. Paul was only there for three Sabbaths. We might say that could be as little as 15 days. It could be as a little bit longer, up to three months, because the Philippian church sent some uh, support that way, and it would be hard to get that support there in such a short amount of time. But anyways, Paul and these new believers that have heard the gospel for the first time in a pioneer work, they have a special bond. And so Paul is writing to them this letter to establish and exhort them in their faith. And when it comes to Christianity, we know that there are some mis understandings and some preconceived ideas, really some misconceptions uh, of Christianity. And as we're working through this book, it's helpful if you're here as our guest, you're new to what is Christianity all about. Paul, before we can make sense of our chapter that we're in, we need to kind of just remind ourselves of sometimes where we get things wrong. And the first one that we can get wrong in the world, or if you're new to church, is that Christianity is really an abstract set of beliefs. Just what I believe, it's what you think in your head, kind of on a higher plane issue. Paul, though, is writing to this church not just about what they think, but also how they live. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. There's a way that Christians talk. You almost have to learn Christianese to go here, but we'll be patient and we'll do this together. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to, what's the next word? Walk and to please God just as you are doing. The Christian life is pictured as a walk. Not this great sprint, but it's how you live. So when you see the word walk, Paul's concerned with not just their thinking, but also their living. He didn't just give them instruction on what to believe. He also gave them instruction on how to behave. He taught them that Jesus is the truth. But he also taught them that Jesus also is the way. There, there's a way to live, not just a way to believe. And so Christianity, more than maybe what you might think when you first walk in the doors, it's more than just our doctrine. Yes, we do put words on the screen. We do want to teach you things about what we believe, but it's more than that. That helps us to correct the second error, that Christianity is just a set of morals. When you come to the sermon that we're going to have this morning, you might be tempted to think Christianity is all about just behaving the right way, that there are some do's that you should really try hard to do, and there are some don'ts that you should just stay away from and work your hardest at. And if you have enough elbow grease, you take enough spiritual protein shakes that you can be a Christian by being a good person. That's not true, okay? 
But we often think that Christianity equals good person. Morals, legalism, oh, that's a church where you can do this and you can't do that. And then we summarize and we label and we're more known for how we live. And if we don't put beliefs and morals together, we can miss the whole picture. Beliefs, head. How you behave, hand. But what connects it to? It's a heart. We want to do head, heart, and hand as we look at God's Word this morning. And if you've been tracking with us through Thessalonians, we come to chapter 4. Really obvious that it comes after chapter 3. But it's a new section of the letter. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul is giving them Christian instruction on what to believe and Christian truth. But this second half of the letter, chapters 4 and chapter 5, now show you the difference that truth is supposed to make in your life. Did you get that? The things that we believe are to have intensely practical consequences that work out in our life. Think of it like this. You need both wings of the airplane to get off the ground. Right thoughts, right beliefs, but also right behavior. And that's how you soar as a Christian and behaving, having that balance. And Paul's going to show us over the next several weeks some toughies. That a Christian, because of what they believe, should live differently when it comes to their sex life, their work life, and how do they approach death. Those are three all-encompassing issues in our life. And Paul says, are you being squeezed into the mold of this world? Are you going to be able to have a radical impact on this world because as a Christian you believe something different, which helps you behave in a different way? Let's go ahead and read chapter 4. Again, that's a large number, verses 1 through 8, the small numbers. Here we go. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk, and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For we know what instruction we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress. And wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand, and solemnly warn you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I asked the first service, I'm going to ask you, would you pray with me? But in this sermon specifically, would you also pray for me? All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we need you. We need a word from you. Uh, and this is a, a topic of our sexuality uh, that we are uh, absorbing uh, each and every single day. And God, we think that you made us in your image and that uh, part of our sexuality uh, is a way that we can honor and glorify you even to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so we thank you for that picture that a husband and a wife can become one flesh in the same way that you and your church can come together as one. You are our head, we are your body, and God, we look forward to knowing you uh, in that intimate of a way, that not only can we know our spouse that way, but the fact that God can be known that way. We pray that you would just open our eyes, see wonders from your law. May you already work in our hearts and want to be willing to obey it. And God, we pray that we would do this corporately as a church together, that truly everyone who is hurting or broken or, or needs encouragement this way would lock arms together and run the race that is set before us, keeping our eyes on our author and our finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. So, 
What we're going to see this morning, we have an outline for you on the screen, just because there seems to be a couple of small sub-points, and I don't want you to get lost. If you have a hard time following along, we usually print out our sermons for you, so you can take that, read that when you get home later, join a small group to discuss it. But the things we're going to learn this morning are the attitudes that we are to have, why we are to have those attitudes, and then the most important question at the end, how do you get there? Okay, here's the Bible standard, but, but how do you actually get there? First, what attitudes are we to have when it comes to our sexuality? Before we get into that nitty-gritty issue that we heard there in verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, we're going to get there, but there's two verses before it. I think that really sets the stage for us well. The big picture is this. Your godliness should be your chief priority. Being like God should be our chief priority, and that will have an immediate impact on your view of sexual intimacy. The Bible says, yes, that we are to avoid sexual immorality. You'll recognize this word even if you don't know Greek. Pornia, that's the word, and it just refers to any kind of sexual intimacy outside of the biblical definition of marriage between a husband and a wife. That's what he says that we are to avoid. As simple as that is, as humans, we have a great way of still confusing ourselves. We have wrong attitudes about our sexuality. They come from the church. They can also come from the world. The first one that I want us to see here is the world wants to tell us that sex is everything. It doesn't take much to turn on the TV, radio, what we listen to, to realize the world is telling us all the time, your sexual fulfillment is the key for you being whole and complete. That if you were to resist or to refrain, you would not flourish and you would not be the real you. And then we come to God's word and we realize that even though Thessalonians was written thousands of years ago, all of a sudden now, it begins to look like we're looking in a mirror, not down a long corridor of time. We might even be able to argue that Thessalonica is thousands of miles away. But when we read this passage, it's like, wow. That really feels a lot more like next door than it does all the way over in Greece. Because our modern day church is not the first time the church has ever struggled to live in a culture that did not accept our ethics. The Thessalonians had no fewer pressures so pervasive and so undermining as you and I face today. The pressures they were under in, our, in regards to their sexuality mirror ours. It could almost be a TV miniseries. Listen to this quote from first century Thessalonica. We keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day bodily needs, but we have wives to produce legitimate children who serve as trustworthy guardians of our homes. Friends, that's terrible, okay? This is not the 1960s. It's not the 1970s. It's not today. This is where a group of Christians were left after three weeks of teaching without the Apostle Paul. So you want to get a feeling for what it's like? Think of it like this. Imagine all you know about Christianity you've learned since January. Never been in a Sunday school class before? Never been to seminary? Haven't listened online to your favorite teacher or talk show? Okay, or preacher, whatever it is. You know nothing except for what you've learned here since January. Would you be ready to combat all the different things coming at you in the world? It might make you want to show up here a little bit more often. Can we come on Monday? Can we come on Tuesday? Can we come on Wednesday? You know, I mean, it might help us with that, right? But in reality, that would be a scary thing. And so Paul is writing them to exhort to come alongside them on how to live the Christian life so that they would reject this wrong view of sex. 
that sex is everything. The Bible says here, this is the will of God, your sanctification. You are set apart to please God. You are not set apart for sex. Your existence is to please the Lord, it says in verse 2. Your existence is not for your sexual desires. The other mistake that we often sometimes get from church, not because the church teaches this, but just because of the church's overwhelming silence on this issue, is that sex is unspiritual. Don't talk about it. It's taboo. It's dirty. It's unclean. It's disgusting. I've actually had the privilege of counseling young couples in pre-marriage counseling who have been told their entire life not to have sex, that when they got married, they honestly felt it was difficult not to feel guilty about finally being able to consummate their marriage in that way. You might find that surprising, but it's true. And the reason why it's true is because our day and age wants to separate you, your body, from your person. What you do with your body shouldn't matter. This is who I really am. This is who I identify as, and what I do with my body just doesn't match who I identify as. And so we live in a day and age that wants to divide our bodies from who we are as a person. If you were to live around the first century, Tim Brown would tell you that's called Gnosticism. It was the belief back in the Bible times that matter was evil and spirit was good. Your flesh, your body, evil, spirit, good. That's why they don't believe that Jesus Christ really was a human. How could God become a human? That would corrupt them. And so matter is evil. Let's not talk about it. It's disgusting. It's wrong. But Christianity says this. It matches with creation. Not only do you have a body, but God's word says we are bodies made in his image. Church, we know that Easter's coming in 35 days, thanks to one of the young heart girls. And Easter reminds us that we are going to have a bodily resurrection. Why would you want to get this old corrupt flesh back up again if it was evil? It's not. The Bible says that God raised Christ from the dead, and he intends to raise our bodies just as he did. So friends, sex isn't dirty because it deals with your body as if your soul is more spiritual. No. Sex is celebrated in the Bible. It is even uses erotic language of how to celebrate it, but its key is it talks about it always in the context of marriage. Look with me at verse 4. You're to avoid sexual immorality, verse 3, but you're, each one of you are to know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. If you look at your Bibles, most of you will have a number or a letter around the word body. And it's to let you know that there is a couple of different ways of translating that phrase. It seems that another translation could be, each of you ought to know how to take a wife for himself. Ladies are going, wait a second. Why is Paul only talking to the men? Now, maybe you're here as a lady and you're thinking, it's good. Paul better be talking to the men, okay? But maybe you're here and you're thinking, why doesn't he talk to me? Why isn't it reciprocal, okay? Why can't we be equal in this frame? Well, Paul does talk about the role of women in their sexuality in other places, and it's a one-to-one equivalent. But here in Thessalonica, he forces the issue for what is going on in the culture. He wants to subvert the power and the privilege that men had in the pagan culture. In case you didn't realize it, in the pagan culture back then, the first century, every man had three or four different women in his life. He had a wife for a legitimate heir. 
a mistress, not as we would think about it, but a mistress was somebody who was your intellectual equal, who emotionally really got you, your soulmate, if you will. Then they also had concubines for physical needs, and sometimes men had prostitutes. And Paul is addressing the men, saying we are done with that. Women lose when men have that view of them categorically as a whole, and Paul is going to teach them that your best friend, your sexual playmate, the mother of your children, your trusted counselor are all to be the same woman, your wife. That's, that's what he wants to teach him here. Marriage is the only context in which sex is holy, beautiful, and it actually works to God's design. It's not for before marriage. It's not for outside of marriage. It is only for inside of marriage. No exceptions, no ifs, ands, or buts. And if Hudson was here, he'd say, or coconuts. Okay, I mean, that's just kind of the the age frame that I'm in, all right? Marriage is the only place sex works. So we're not to avoid it because as if there is some disgusting element about it. No, We are to have it in our marriage relationships. And outside of our marriage relationships, it is actually called sexual immorality. And you can't separate what you do with your body from who you really are. Listen to this verse, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, So glorify God in your body. You can't say that my body doesn't match who I really am. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and you can glorify God with it. So girls, here's a little tip. When you are dating, whatever age that's appropriate at, that guy looks you in the eye, and your heart starts racing, your palms are getting sweaty, and you're making eye contact, scoot over, nudge over closer to him, look at him and bat those eyes, do the yawn and put your arm around him. And as he's thinking, wow, she really likes me, lean over to his ear and whisper, this isn't my body. Well, well, whose is it? God's. (laughs) And if you touch me, you are committing vandalism with God's property. That me that you're touching is God's. Oh my goodness, right? Dads, you're welcome. A little bit of fun in the sermon. Okay, we had to lighten it a little bit here, all right? I think it could work, okay? According to Paul's logic, that your body is not your own. It's the Holy Spirit. You're bought with a price. Glorify God in your bodies. What Paul is saying is that there are sexual sins that we should avoid. Not every sexual desire you have is to be pursued or fulfilled. Paul doesn't say to avoid all sex. Paul says to enjoy sex within the confines of marriage. And beloved, please know that Satan wants to do everything he can to get you in bed before marriage and to get you out of bed once you're married. And the antidote to a wrong view of sex is to treat sex like a fire. Ray Ortland said, sex is a fire. Inside the fireplace of marriage, it keeps us warm. But outside the fireplace of marriage, It burns us down. What people would say would be liberation in our hiccup, in our hookup, hiccup, hookup or hookup culture, it really leaves you disintegrated, lonely, and broken, 
And we can see that there are times when you get put back together and put the fire in the right place. Christian young person, Christian single, see that God's goal for your sexual purity is both before marriage and after marriage. This sermon is relevant to everybody in here. Dealing with sex now, or I'm sorry, delaying sex now as a young person before marriage will help you have self-control when you want to have sex with somebody outside of marriage. Newsflash, young person. Sexual temptation does not end when you get married. I can't tell you how many young people I've counseled through youth group that have believed the lie that I will no longer need to look at pornography when I get married. It's a lie. As soon as I can complete this, then I won't need this. No, temptation abounds whether you're before you're married or after marriage. We have to have a big picture view. The person you are tempted to have sexual immorality with now is not the last person you will ever feel that way towards. It's the attitude that we are to have about sex. And your purity is not just for before marriage, it's even after marriage. Now let's figure out why are we to have that attitude. Maybe you're here making it through this much of the sermon can't wait for me to pray and dash out the door, and you're thinking, why does this even matter? Today, it would be phrased like this, why should God care who I sleep with? With everything else going on in the universe, does it really matter what I do in the bedroom? Well, two reasons that Paul has for us. The first one is in verse 5, and Paul says, actually, why you need to have this attitude is it reveals who you worship. It reveals who you worship. Look at verse 5. You are to know how to control your body, not in the passion of the lust like the Gentiles, here's our phrase, who do not know God. What's the principle? Why are you to have this attitude? How you steward your body can reveal who you truly worship. Paul argues that to engage in sexual immorality is a sign that you don't know God. Paul's not just talking about a belief in God. Paul says, when you truly know God, the God who is there, Jesus Christ, it will change your sexual ethics. Why is that? How is that? Well, our sexual intimacy with God, or our sexual intimacy with one another, is to mirror how God has a relationship with us. Did you know that God cannot have an intimate relationship with you without first being deeply committed to you? You never see God having intimacy before there's commitment. Total commitment comes first, then total intimacy. It's the most amazing theological truth that will help you stay pure in reference to sexual sins is that if you want total intimacy, you have to have total commitment because that's how God relates to us. So think about it this way. There is nothing that will exalt you more, lift you up, than to have somebody who first comes to you and says, I'm totally committed to you for the rest of my life and to you alone and to no one else. You want to feel special? Which those vows are all about. And then the next thing is, now I take off all of my clothes and I commit myself to you. You have commitment and you have intimacy which is why it doesn't work outside of marriage. We take off all of our clothes, and then we say, you mean the world to me. The other person says, okay, let's get married. To which the first person says, oh, 
It's complicated. Uh, you, which really means what? You don't really mean the world to me. I, I, I said you did. But if you're not willing to get married, it really means, no, you don't mean the world to me. And now sex is a lie instead of an act of reverence and honor to somebody else. Second, Paul says, why are you to have this attitude? It'll help. How you steward your body is how you love your neighbor. Did you see that in verse 6? The first reason why is because it shows who you truly worship. The second reason in verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand, so let me warn you. Sexual sin is taking something that you do not have the right to. And friends, this is the case even if it's consensual. Paul is not talking about rape here. Even in consensual sex, you are engaging in sexual sin because you are not loving your brother. And Paul wants you to understand that that temporary pleasure can bring long-term pain. God's not indifferent. We see that in that next phrase. The Lord is an avenger in all these things. God is not indifferent to our sexual sins. And it's the motivation here. Why to have this attitude? The wrath of God. God stands in fierce opposition to sexual immorality. So he tells us to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. And even though God isn't indifferent, I want you to hear hope. God is also not intimidated by your sexual sins. Jesus once met a woman, a woman who has no name in the Bible, she was from Samaria, a place that you wouldn't want to be from if you were to meet a Jewish man. And while they were at the well, Jesus got into a deep conversation with her. He pursued her because he wasn't intimidated about her sexual past. She had had five husbands and was living with another man. He pursues her. He engages her in a conversation. And he calls out her sin to let her know he already knows everything about her. He knows everything about her, and yet he still pursues her, not intimidated. Which means this, whatever you've committed, whether years ago, this week, this morning, Christ's church is not intimidated by your sins. He pursues sinners to himself. Yes, he confronts us in our sin, but it's all for the purpose of redeeming us. That's why he's done the cross, to forgive us of our sin debt. So if you're here, and you're a non-Christian, can you just pay attention for a second? If you've drifted off, this sermon on sexual sins, I just want you to hear this. If you're a non-Christian, you're still exploring what does it mean. I don't want to talk to you about your sins, plural. We want to talk to you about your sin. There's a difference. It's not your sexual sin, but your sin as a whole that we all share as humanity, our common depravity that separates you from God. So if you were to come to me and ask about how to become a Christian, how to follow Christ, I would say that your sin as a whole, mine as a whole, all of us, has separated us from God and we're in rebellion against Him. And yes, I have a lot of other sins that can show you how I've tried to take up arms and fight against God and run away and live my own life and be my own boss, and those might be different than yours. Sins. But we have all sinned against God. And so if you are willing to share 
in my common depravity? Guess what the good news is? You can share in my common salvation in Jesus Christ who redeems sinners. If you're here outside of Christ, I want you to get this picture of what does it really mean in church because church can put all kinds of labels on you and once you get a leper spot, I know some of you have said, I, I will never get unlabeled from that in church. May it not be so here. Here are the only two kinds of people in the world. There are saved sinners and there are lost sinners. That's it. Saved sinners, lost sinners. That's it. Right? So no matter what you might see when you look in the rearview mirror, stop looking in the rearview mirror and look to Christ, right, who paid it all and rose from the dead. In Christ, you are more than your sexual past. Amen? The separation between who goes to heaven and who goes to hell is not a box that is checked, sexual immorality. Paul says, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor present, nor future, nor any other power, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Which means God is not abandoning, God is redeeming. Your promiscuity will not keep you out of heaven any more than, church kid, your virginity will get you in. Amen? Repentance is what we all need. You might need to repent of your sexual immorality, but you also might need to repent of your self-righteousness, Christian young person, because you have all these good things that you've done, and you use that as kudos to earn favor with God. Here's repentance. We often heard of it as a negative word. It's turning from and turning to. You know what that turn is? Repentance means you're turning from your sin to greater intimacy with Christ. Could repentance be redeemed as a word in church for I want greater intimacy with God than what I've had by my self-righteousness or my sexual immorality? We're all called to do that. How do you get there? Our last point. We're going to look here at the last couple verses. How do you get this Christian attitude that Paul has? big picture. You ready? You still tracking with me? You need a stretch? We all with it? Good? Not sleepy? How could you be sleepy on this topic? <laughs> I haven't slept all week thinking about this. <laughs> all right. Ah, big picture. God and Paul expect Christians to struggle in this area or else he wouldn't write this chapter. If God thought you would just drift into sexual purity, there would not be these eight verses saying, avoid sexual immorality. It's going to be a struggle. The fact is, all of us, starting with me, in this area of life, in one way or another, have fallen short. Whether it is what you have done or whether you, what you have thought, all of us have failed and are broken when it comes to our sexuality which is why we need to hear chapter 4 in light of the first three chapters. If you weren't here for those sermons, here's a nutshell. Yes, you heard a really tough thing today in chapter 4, verse 6, about the wrath of God, him being an avenger. But did you know that chapter 1, verse 10, says that same God, Jesus Christ, came to deliver you from the wrath to come? So the God who says he's an avenger also is the God who says, I sent my son so you wouldn't have to experience the wrath to come. It's the same God that's saying both. 
Paul wants in these verses to show us that we can live a changed life. And here's the point. It is possible to please God while still having things to work on. How you walk. Look at verse 1 again in chapter 4. Finally, brothers, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you're doing. You're, you're doing it, but I want you to do so what? More and more. And then he goes on to give them instructions on how they've been missing it. We want to please God, and that's the heart of Christianity. And you will never, may it never be found in the elders of this church that if your heart is to please God, that we would somehow, because you are struggling, say, there is no hope for you. It is a warfare for all of us, okay? And we want to have a relationship with God, and we want to live for the pleasure of God. So maybe you're here and you're asking yourself this question. How do I actually live to please God? The only way you will ever live to please God is if God pleases you above everything else. How do you please God? Is if God pleases you above everything else. We all live to please someone. Who are you living to please? Yourself? A friend? An employer? A spouse? The motivation that you want to please God is the very stuff that this fight against sexual immorality is made of. Whenever we are going to overcome an ungodly desire, we got to replace it with a stronger desire. Do you get that? How do you fight sexual sin? The answer is in verse 1. Live to please God instead of living to please self. And could you find the pleasures of God, the verdict of God, more substantial than the embrace of someone of the opposite sex or even of the same sex before or outside of marriage? Could God be that real to you? That's what we're all looking for. Augustine said that every man that goes to a brothel is looking for God. chew on that so how do you do this you take your old desire and you replace it with a stronger desire on the back of your bulletins is a scan code i realize that's probably only helpful for the younger generation they will help you download an app they will scan it for you and they'll let you read it on your phone that you're still figuring out how to unlock okay but they'll do it for you and here is the title of this puritan sermon the expulsive power of a new affection you don't have to read it. All you got to know is the title. Read the title again. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The premise is this. You overcome a desire by having a stronger one. How does that oak tree over there in the parsonage yard that has made it through winter with brown leaves still hanging on it, how does that dead leaf finally fall off? Sap begins to run. Spring comes, and it finally, a new bud, new life, a stronger desire puts it off. If you don't like agricultural analogies, think about junior high boys. They're my favorite. Hygiene, eh. Organization, eh. Thoughtfulness to others, eh. But then all of a sudden, all these things they could care less about, whether they match, any of that stuff, all of a sudden it begins to matter. Usually it changes for a young man in one of two ways. I'm a man, girls apply it to your way, girl-wise. Usually a young man gets his first dollar, dollar, and he begins to know the power and the desire of having money. All of a sudden, the kid that wants to sleep in till 1 p.m. on Saturday afternoon, the kid that you're fighting to get out of bed to go to school, he experiences the power of a dollar and what it can do to him. The next thing you know, what is he? He's up out of bed, he's clean shaven, 
junior high. I don't know. Okay, but, you know, he, he, he's kept. He shows up to work on time because now he's motivated, right? Something matters to him. Another one, not the dollar, but it's the lady. All of a sudden, this boy who could care less how he looks, could care less about literature and writing poems, thinks that he should take his hand at writing a love poem to a girl. He should think that he's going to comb his hair. And he puts himself together. And have you seen this transformation in your kids? All of a sudden, bam, they're orderly, they're respectful, they're clean, they care how they smell, they're writing poetry. What has happened to you? I now desire something more than my own comfort. I desire that girl. Same thing with Christ. He is so real, church, that you can begin to desire him like a dollar or like a person, and all of a sudden it sets in order all these other things in your life that before you had no time for, you could care less about. But it changes you. And so our principle is whatever motivates you is what matters to you. May it be Christ. Consider him lovely. What will matter more than the verdict of God at the end? If you would like a real practical step on how you get there, how does this help? I think you need some self-denial and some self-control in all of your life. If you want to just try to have self-control with your sexual purity, I think we're going to fail. Someone sent me a quote this week that said this about our culture. We live in a consumeristic culture. We have food on demand, celebrity on demand, stuff on demand, cheap goods on demand, pornography on demand, entertainment on demand, comfort on demand, distraction on demand, information on demand, power on demand, energy on demand. If you have all those on demand and you have to try and you give in to all of them, how do you ever think you're going to resist sexual sins? Fight it with me holistically. Say no to food on demand. Say no to entertainment on demand. Say no to distraction on demand. And as we get our feet in the right direction with self-denial holistically, maybe we'll find that our feet stay there on one of the toughest ones, sexually. I thought that was a really good insight. If you want to disagree, I'd love to hear from you and figure out how we can make it better. But that one stuck with me this week. And I pray that it would stick with you as there's a fight before the fight. You say no to these other things, you practice self-control in these other areas, that's the fight before the fight of sexual immorality because sin, its roots, are not in your outward behavior. They're usually in your pattern of thinking. So it's the fight before the fight. Our last point to how you get there, look at verse 8 and we'll wrap it up. You've been great. But verse 8, you need it. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God. And here's our last little bit of hope, who gives you the Holy Spirit. I know you could listen to a sermon like this and feel guilty and shameful in so many ways, and you might say, Josh, there is never going to be a day I'm going to be able to change. I'm just, I'm just so hooked. My sexual appetite is so strong. If you're a believer, God gave you the greatest gift, the Holy Spirit, and there is a new power working in you, the same power that rose Christ from the dead the same power that can take that leaf off that tree and produce new life. It's the same power that can take a dead person and make them alive. The reason why I believe in a resurrection is because I know a guy who went into the grave and three days later walked out. And he can do the same in your life. The mark of a Christian is not perfection. It's a process. And would you desire to grow more and more where God takes the world out of you so that he can bring the world to God through you. Transform, transform. Our holiness is to be a lifestyle, not a hashtag for Sunday. And I'd like to end, I know I'm over time,
This is so important. Five commitments we make to you as our church leadership. We are one body. No matter what your struggle is, you have a place to belong here. You don't have to be perfect to go here. The Bible teaches us, in fact, that no matter what your struggle is, when one member of the body suffers, guess what? We all suffer. So do you see how sin causes suffering, not only in those wrapped up in it, but the entire body to suffer? We're not going to kick you out. We're all suffering and struggling with you, and we want to bear your burdens together. But we also know that we are a diverse body, which means that the church is filled with people whose lives are nothing like mine. Who else in here is from D.C., Northern Virginia? Okay. Two. Thanks, Yoon. Okay. Two of us. We have diverse backgrounds. Who else was raised by Ames and Cindy Owens? No, nobody. Okay, great. That was just me. <laughs> My brother's not here. All right. Diverse body, diverse backgrounds. Some of us have difficulties that others of us have never encountered. So, do you really believe that Christ can transform sexually immoral people, whether heterosexual or homosexual? You really believe that, church? Then why do we talk about them in negative ways we do? God would never make fun of a homosexual. Church, are you more fearful of the sin in others than the, than the sin in your own heart? Are you more fearful of the sin in others than you are fearful before God of the sin in your own heart? Remember, we're a diverse body, diverse backgrounds, diverse experiences, which means that we will need to listen. We want to covenant with you that we will believe the unbelievable. See, Josh, if I told you this, no, no one would ever believe me. I went to a counselor once and never believed me. Well, you know what? We don't also want to fix. I heard a person say, or I heard an account of a person caught in a sexual sin who was asked to come to church, and that person's response was this. Why would I want to feel worse about myself than I already do? May that never be so at Faith Community Bible Church. Instead, can you imagine a church where those who confess their sins and struggles receive compassion and healing? We could do a whole sermon series on trying to live these out as one body. Next, we will intercede with hope, knowing that God is a God of mercy, redemption, second chances, and salvation. Friend, if you're here outside of Christ, churchgoer, Christian, all your sin tells you is where your heart has been. It's all sin tells you, where you've been. But guess what? Those in Christ get to be told by Christ who you are and what your ultimate destiny is. Sin says, look at what you've done. Christ says, I'm your identity, and look at what I'm going to make you. So we're going to intercede believing that Christ is your Savior, Christ is your identity, and not your sin. That will give us the grace that we need to extend to others. And last, we will not assume. You know what the most difficult thing would be? I'm not going to do this, but if I had an altar call and said, anybody want to come and talk about this and learn more? Some of us would sit around and look and see who came forward. And we go, oh. They must struggle with that. <laughs> Guys, discipleship, our church vision, is to help each person say, let's put a fence way before the, the edge. So who doesn't want to walk forward? Who doesn't want to say, hey, I'm interested in this topic. I want to conform my sexual life to God's glory, and I want to please God in that way. Anybody that comes forward is just saying, how do I build a better fence? Not, oh, you deal with that? 
So do you have someone with whom you can entrust your struggles and whom you can trust to help navigate through them? In closing, I wrote the sermon with six other ladies. Six ladies read this sermon last week, edited it, sent me back their edits, which means this. There are women in this church that if you're struggling, ladies, there are six women that I know that have thought through this sermon better, made edits, made it what it is today because of their experience and what they uh, have and in their insight from God's word, how to offer hope and offer teaching. If you want to meet with a lady and talk about this, there's six of them that I have at the tip of my tongue. Love to introduce them to you. Guys, obviously the elders, Pastor Pat and I, anyone here would love to walk with you through this. It's a process, not a light switch moment. It's something that we continually have to grow and work in. We pray that you will see yourself today as an ambassador of Christ, that we are an embassy. Do not use this message to sharpen your sword to go out there and forget compassion to others. Our world is a world that needs compassion in the area of their sexuality because church, there is coming a day, and I pray that it would be soon if we are ready as a church to receive any and all, but if we are a place that an alcoholic can come after he's experienced addiction in that way and how his life has been destroyed because of that, and we would welcome him, there is coming a day more and more where we will have people here that have struggled with homosexuality, that have struggled with transgenderism, that have struggled with heterosexual sin, and we're going to say we are a place for you where you can belong and not have your identity made in your sexual past, but your identity can be in Christ Jesus. Would you lock arms and do that with us? And that's all about you being a witness out there as ambassadors for Christ, telling people where to come to the embassy until we get to go to our heavenly city. Amen? Thank you, church, for letting me get all that out in the longest sermon ever delivered, Faith Community Bible Church. All right, let's pray and we'll be dismissed.